This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Today's episode is sponsored by Nadex. Imagine if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front. That way you could try day trading the markets without worrying about the risk. Well, luckily you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Poor Ulysses S. Grant. You lead a million-man army and win the war that preserves the Union and frees the slaves. Then the American people elect you president not once but twice. And still you go down in history remembered as a drunkard, a brute, a financial failure, and an incompetent president who presided over one of the most corrupt administrations in history. So much so that an aggregate of historical rankings of U.S. presidents puts Grant at number 36. Just a reminder, we've only had 45 presidents. Seems like a pretty shabby way to treat a war hero, especially when you consider that the United States of America might not even exist today if it hadn't been for Ulysses Grant. Honestly, what's a guy got to do to get a little respect? Well, my guest today, Ron Chernow, says Ulysses S. Grant's life has all too often been either misunderstood or mischaracterized, and these stereotypes don't even come close to capturing the real man and his accomplishments. Now the award-winning historian is on a mission to rehabilitate the 18th president with a masterful new biography titled Grant. One of America's most venerated historians, Chernow has earned accolades and acclaim as a biographer of giants in U.S. history, from titans of industry like J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller to founding fathers Alexander Hamilton and George Washington. In 2011, he won the Pulitzer Prize and American History Book Prize for his book, Washington, A Life. He's also the recipient of the National Book Award for the House of Morgan, an American banking dynasty, and the rise of modern finance. His biographies of John D. Rockefeller Sr. and Alexander Hamilton were both nominated for National Book Critics Circle Awards, while the latter was also turned into the hit Broadway musical Hamilton. The recipient of the 2015 National Humanities Medal, Ron Chernow has just completed his seventh book, an epic work on the life of Ulysses S. Grant, and today he joins me to separate fact from fiction surrounding the much-maligned general and president. He shares what he's learned about Grant's drinking and whether it was as bad as it's been portrayed. He discusses Grant's early failures in life, his meteoric rise through the ranks during the Civil War, and how Grant struggled with his own personal Civil War at home. He makes the case for General Grant as a brilliant military strategist and argues that he deserves more credit for holding the Union together and ensuring that emancipation didn't become an empty promise. We discuss how Grant later went broke when he trusted his fortune to the Bernie Madoff of his day, and how none other than Mark Twain helped the former president dig himself out of debt so he wouldn't leave his family destitute when he finally died of agonizing throat cancer. Plus, Ron gives his review of Grant's own autobiography, weighs in on the Confederate statue controversy, and more, coming up with Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian Ron Chernow in just a moment. 
Ron Chernow is one of America's most respected historians, the recipient of the 2015 National Humanities Medal. He's authored seven books, including his first book, The House of Morgan, which won the National Book Award, Washington, A Life, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography, and Alexander Hamilton, which inspired the Broadway musical and earned Rob Chernow an American History Book Prize. Now he's followed those up with his epic book titled Grant, which Newsday hailed as the definitive biography of Ulysses S. Grant and the New York Times is calling a major event. Ron Chernow, thanks for coming on the podcast and congratulations on Grant. Thank you so much. It's been very gratifying. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, when I think of Grant and Lee, it always struck me as ironic that the leader of the rebel army went on to this semi-distinguished retirement as the president of Washington College, now Washington and Lee, and was regarded as this gentleman and sort of this elder statesman in the South, while the general who won the war and became the president of the United States went broke and sort of went down in history as this sad, incompetent drunk in the popular imagination. Was part of your goal to rehabilitate Grant's reputation? Absolutely. You know, I think that there's a a contrarian streak in my nature, that I like to take the receive wisdom and turn it upside down. And that was certainly one of the ironies that was most on my mind, that uh, the South lost the Civil War, as we all know, and yet Grant was li- uh, that Lee was lionized as the great general. And uh, Grant, who to my mind was infinitely the superior general, was uh, denigrated. You know, during the war, Grant actually captures Three Confederate armies. He captures the Confederate army at Fort Donaldson in Tennessee in 1862, Vicksburg in Mississippi in 1863, and most famously Robert E. Lee's own army at Appomattox Courthouse in 1865. Robert E. Lee never captured a single Union army. So why is it that there were all these monuments to Robert E. Lee rather than to Ulysses S. Grant? Yeah, it really gives lie to this idea that the victors get to write the history books, doesn't it? Well, in many ways, you know, the North uh, won the war and lost the uh, the peace. And kind of a major theme Mm. of the book is the extent to which the the South, after the Civil War, was able to roll back many of the gains that the North had achieved, particularly in terms of uh, trying to achieve a fully biracial society in the U.S. Mm-hmm. for the first time. Now, the popular caricature of Grant today is that he was this bumbling drunkard getting into, yes. again, the, <laughs> the, yeah. the denigration of poor Ulysses Grant. Was Grant's alcoholism really as bad as it's portrayed? Well, you know, it's funny, Ben, because when I started doing the book, my friend Harold Holzer, who's a great uh, Lincoln scholar, said, you know, Ron, it would be nice to settle once and for all the Grant and drinking <laughs> controversy, which I like to think that I uh, have. What I discovered was, I think one thing that has mystified uh, historians for 150 years is that a lot of people who worked very closely with Grant said, you know, I worked with him for weeks or months. I never saw him touch a drop of liquor. <laughs> all of these stories are invented. But what I discovered was that Grant was an alcoholic. I say that one because by his own admission, he couldn't take just one glass. He, mm-hmm. would, he would then have to drink more. And two, it would trigger off a personality change. And one reason that there was you know, one group of people who saw him drunk and other people you know, who never did was that uh, he was a, a, a periodic or episodic uh, binge drinker. He could go for two or three months without taking uh, a glass of alcohol. Uh, and then he would go on a bender. And what I found was that there was an amazingly consistent pattern. He never drank on the eve of a battle or during a battle. But after battle, when the pressure was off, he would travel to a side town where he could not <laughs> be seen by his soldiers or officers. And then really? he would have a two or three day drunk. And uh, according to William Tecumseh Sherman, he was then able to snap back and, as Sherman said, be fresh as a rose when it was 
over. So then Grant was a functioning alcoholic, or, or were there moments when his drinking affected his judgment or performance or possibly cost soldiers' well, that, lives? That's a wonderful question because, you know, as part of my research, I can't tell you how many friends I spoke to, you know, who were in AA, and they all had the same reaction. Grant was what we call in AA a high-functioning really? uh, alcoholic. It did <laughs> not affect his performance. He could almost schedule these um, binges. Um, and so it's a you know fascinating story. I also told the story that uh, when he became brigadier general, he hired as his chief of staff a young lawyer from his town of Galena, Illinois, John Rollins. And Rollins took the job on the condition that um, if Grant touched a drop of liquor during the war, that he, Rollins, would quit. Anyway, a central uh, part of my narrative is what happened between these two men because Grant fell off the wagon many times. Rollins privately chastised him while publicly reassuring <laughs> President Lincoln and others that there was no problem. The reason he did that was that he came to believe that the fate of the Union cause rested on the shoulders of Grant, that there was no other A general. Higher cause. Who, that there was no other general who was of Grant's caliber. Now, what was Ulysses Grant's upbringing like? He grew up in—he uh, was born in 1822. He grew up in the southwestern corner of Ohio, um, just outside of what's uh, Cincinnati uh, today. Um, this was a rural area. And I think the location where he grew up is very important to the story because um, he was just born paces from the Ohio River, which separated um, slave-owning Kentucky right. from free Ohio. Yeah. And so this is um, a childhood spent you know, kind of straddling the north-south divide recently. And I think that it's one reason that he was able to kind of understand the positions of both sides and later on emerges as mm -hmm. a figure of reconciliation between north and south, although that turned out to have a very troubled history. Yeah, another area where he straddled the north and the south was in his personal life. <laughs> it was an interesting fact that I didn't know. kind of came as a surprise to me that while he himself came from a strict Methodist abolitionist background, he married into a rich slaveholding family. I have to imagine that must have caused some friction in his home life. Absolutely. I mean, poor Grant was uh, caught on the one hand between his overbearing abolitionist father and his equally overbearing slave-owning uh, <laughs> father-in-law. In fact, uh, you know, the, the Grants and his in-laws, the Dents, really were like the Hatfields and the McCoys. The, the Grants were so wow. horrified by their Ulysses marrying into a slave-owning family that when Grant marries Julia Dent in St. Louis in 1848, the entire Grant family boycotts the wedding, and they never really accepted uh, Julia. And his uh, father-in-law, uh, Colonel Dent, and the colonel was purely honorific. Colonel Dent said when the war broke out and Ulysses went with the uh, Union side, he said, if my worthless son-in-law ever sets foot on my land, I'll shoot him like a rabbit. <laughs> and you thought you had a difficult father-in-law. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's funny you say that because he was kind of seen as somewhat worthless throughout most of his life, particularly prior to the war. He kind of went from failure to failure as a businessman and you know, even earlier on as during his career at West Point, was he a particularly ambitious or promising student? No. You know, I keep saying to people that um, this is a story completely unlike any that I've ever written because when I was written, writing about J.P. Morgan or John D. Rockefeller or Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, I felt as I was researching the story that even in their adolescence, they were built for success. They mm -hmm. had fire in the belly and they had this drive and ambition that guaranteed that they were going to do something amazing. Ulysses S. Grant had no such big uh, <laughs> dreams. He graduated in the middle of his class at uh, West Point. 
In fact, when he graduates from West Point, the uh, extent of his ambition, he wants to uh, return to the academy as an assistant math professor, not a full <laughs> math professor, <laughs> but as an assistant math two. professor. And then uh, what happens, so he ends up going into the regular army, 1854. He's drummed out of the army because of a drinking episode. He then tries farming in St. Louis. Um, he's a failure. He ends up selling firewood on street corners in St. Louis. 1857, he's so uh, poor that he has to um, pawn his watch in order to buy Christmas presents for his wife and children. And then in the greatest coming down of all, 1860s, so or just a year before the Civil War, he has to go to his father, hat in hand, and ask for a job as a clerk in his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, where he goes to work as a clerk junior to his two younger brothers. You know, huh. Grant was 38 years old and married with uh, with uh, four children. So I don't know that anyone yeah. who has ever served as president in our country <laughs> has hit bottom as many times in life as Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's fair to say that prior to the Civil War, no one would have bet on Ulysses Grant to lead a million-man army, much less be president. No, in fact, it's interesting because during those terrible years in uh, St. Louis, uh, Julia uh, Dan Grant always had this implicit faith in her husband's greatness. You know, and when he's selling firewood on street corners in St. Louis to survive, Julia has a dream uh, that one day her Ulysses would be president of the United States. And when she told it to friends and family members, they all laughed. It seemed like the height of uh, lunacy to imagine that this man who was just desperately trying to survive would someday be president of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Grant goes into the Civil War with some military experience. He's not a, a totally green. He has some under his belt, but he, I suppose he's nothing terribly special at the outset, yet he skyrockets through the ranks at a record speed. How did this up-to-now unremarkable man manage such a meteoric rise? Well, he had all of that uh, you know, information from West Point stored in his mind. He also had served with great distinction uh, mm -hmm. in the, the Mexican War, particularly he was mm -hmm. a quartermaster. So he had the experience of uh, logistics. He understood kind of the bureaucratic operation of a large army moving over great distances, which would be very important in the, uh, in, in the Civil War. And the speed with which he rises is astonishing. Remember, there was a uh, an acute shortage of trained officers on both sides when the Civil War mm -hmm. broke out. So um, two months after the war breaks out, he's a colonel. Four months later, he's a brigadier general. Ten months later, he's a major general. Of course, by the end of the war, he's general-in-chief, and he has a million soldiers under his command. And that was the mightiest military machine ever created in American history up until that uh, point. So yeah. he'd be hard-pressed. I don't even think Alexander Hamilton's <laughs> life was you know, quite as improbable <laughs> as this one. Now, what did Lincoln see in Grant? Um, you know, what Lincoln saw in Grant, uh, after Vicksburg fell in 1863, Lincoln, who loved Grant, said, and he'd never actually seen Grant face-to-face -face at that point. Uh, after the fall of Vicksburg, Lincoln said, you know, Grant is my man until the end of the war, and I am, you know, Grant's man. Um, Lincoln uh, felt that he had had in the East a series of whining, procrastinating generals who always hesitated to attack. If they attacked and were defeated, they blamed Lincoln for the loss. They were always arguing, you know, that they didn't have enough men. Um, Grant was very uh, self-sufficient. He was very much a self-starter. And as Lee was defeating one Union general after another, 
in Virginia in the Eastern Theater of the War, Grant was winning one battle after the Western, you know, mm-hmm. history of the Civil War is very, very different. You yeah. know, it's funny because you read if you read a history of the Civil War that focuses on Virginia, it seems like the South is winning the entire <laughs> war. Then suddenly, for yeah. some reason, they lose yeah. at the end. But actually, yeah. if you start reading about what Grant was doing in the in in the West, particularly with the fall of uh, Vicksburg and um, you know, misses the control of the Mississippi falls to the Union Army. It bisects the Confederacy, and a lot of the kind of horses mm-hmm. and supplies of the Confederacy came from yeah. west of the Mississippi. So it's kind of a major step in beginning to starve out uh, the Confederate Army. And even when Grant is facing Lee, uh, Lee at Richmond and Petersburg is um, b- being supplied by five railroads and a canal, and Grant systematically cuts off his access to all five of those railroads and canals. Again, he was a former quartermaster who understood the importance of supplies. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting you point that out because it seems to me that credit for winning the Civil War is often given to just the sheer numbers of the Union Army or the industrialized North and the railroad network, uh, almost anything except Grant. You know, rarely you know, is he given credit. It seems that he's thought of kind of as an afterthought or a blunt instrument more than a tactician. Does he deserve more respect as a strategist? You know, absolutely. You know, those people who say, well, of course Grant won because he had, you know, superior manpower. The population of the North was much larger and he had the manufacturing base of the North um, uh, behind it. Um, but that begs the question of why before Grant goes to Virginia in 1864 to directly face uh, Lee, um, the North and the Army of the Potomac had had Urban um, McDowell and George McClellan, mm-hmm. John Pope, uh, Ambrose Burnside, Joe Hooker, George Gordon Meade, all of these generals who had preceded Grant who had the same advantage in terms of the Northern, you know, uh, population and manufacturing power were not mm. able to defeat Lee. But as soon as Grant comes along, he can. So there was clearly something going yeah. on other than you know whatever natural advantages the North had. Is there a particular victory that best makes the case for Grant the strategist? You know, the one um, I spoke to, you know, different um, military people as I was writing the, the, the book. And one, the one um, that is really enshrined in the Army Manual in training at West Point seems to be uh, Vicksburg, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, uh, Grant uh, Vicksburg seemed to be this impregnable fortress, uh, fortification that went on for seven miles along the Mississippi. Um, and, uh, you know, Grant has his gunboats, you know, run the Mississippi past those uh, guns. He then transfers a massive army um, onto the east side of the river where the ground was, you know, higher and drier. Uh, and then in a five-week period, you know, wins this electrifying, you know, series of, of five victories and then lays siege to uh, Vicksburg. I know that Vicksburg and uh, Chattanooga um, were Grant's two uh, favorites that he felt were kind of the model of what he could yeah. do as a as general. What did he think of Robert E. Lee? That's a complicated question. Uh, he respected him. Uh, interestingly enough, when asked— after the war, who was the greatest general? He said Joseph Johnston, uh, which was funny, uh, but not as funny as Lee being asked uh, after the war who was the greatest general on the Union side. And he said George McClellan, who had been a disaster. <laughs> so I think that there was certainly a kind of a competitive yeah. uh, uh, thing going on. Um, Grant felt that uh, Lee was a very good general, but overrated. Uh, uh, he had a mm-hmm. wonderful line. He said, Robert E. Lee was a man who needed sunshine. And he felt that in the South, 
that there was greater political unity and that um, Lee had had this you know, uncritical adoration and support. Grant felt with the so-called you know, copperhead element in the North, in other words, you know, the people who had pro-Southern sympathies mm-hmm. or, uh, were uh, against the, uh, the war, he felt that he was um, you know, facing uh, a much more complicated and divided you know, North as a, um, uh, as a general. But I, I thought the best uh, line, William Tecumseh Sherman, comparing Grant and Lee, said uh, Grant's strategy using the railroads and the telegraph, Grant's strategy embraced a continent uh, Lee's a small state, and I think that that kind of shows. I think that Grant was the bigger strategic thinker. They were both mm-hmm. kind of brilliant tacticians in individual battle, and, and Lee was quite extraordinary uh, in that. But I think that um, Grant was the one who had this sweeping overall plan mm-hmm. for winning the war. Now, how significant was Grant's handling of Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in terms of how the South perceived the Union and shaping that relationship after the war? Well, you know, his handling of it was uh, uh, exemplary in terms of its fairness. Uh, at Appomattox, uh, Grant said that the um, confe- defeated Confederate soldiers uh, could keep their horses and mules, which was no small thing. Um, they were starving. He gave them all 25,000 rations. Uh, he allowed the Confederate officers to keep their sidearms. And I think the most important thing was that he refused to gloat. He refused to allow his men to celebrate. Lee's surrender. Huh. And a couple of no interesting st- the football. Yeah, you know, a couple of interesting stories about this. Um, uh, Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. After the Confederacy fell, uh, Grant's wife Julia said, "You should really go into to Richmond." You know, the conquering hero. And Grant said to her, Julia, "Don't you realize how bitter defeat is for these people?" And I don't want to rub it in. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, Ulysses F. Grant huh. never went to Richmond after the fall of, um, yeah. of Richmond. Of course, he was pursuing. Uh, Lee, who was a fleeing west. The other story that I found find fascinating and admirable is that um, when there was a proposal to hang in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, um, a historical painting showing Lee surrendering to Grant, he said no. He said that, huh. that would simply humiliate the uh, the South. And I think that the, because he had experienced so much failure in his own life, I think that he understood the psychology of defeated people better than any other that general. is so interesting the same face you know? wow yeah. now five days after that of course lincoln was assassinated and it's funny because i think a lot of people forget that it was intended to be part of a larger conspiracy to decapitate the government but the aspect of that that i didn't know was that i guess grant was targeted as well and probably would have died right alongside lincoln in ford's theater if it hadn't been for a fight with his wife is that right yeah, that's exactly right well the yeah. day that um, you know abraham and mary lincoln were going to to ford's theater uh, grant was at the white house this a- that afternoon <clears throat> lincoln said to him you know the people want to see the victorious president and the victorious general in public uh, together a few weeks earlier, the Lincolns had been in City Point, Virginia, where Grant had his headquarters, and um, uh, uh, Mary Lincoln, whose behavior was increasingly bizarre and uh, unstable, um, had had a terrible um, a quarrel with Julia uh, uh, Dan Grant. And Julia said, I'm not going to the to Ford's Theater if Mary Lincoln is going to be there. So the Grants uh, decided they would flee town and go to Burlington, New Jersey. Um, now, two things happened that day, which are very interesting. Number one, at lunch, uh, Julia Grant was having lunch at Willard's Hotel around the corner from the White House. And during lunch, she was very unnerved by a pale man with dark hair who kept staring at her, these beady eyes, and playing with his soup spoon menacingly. 
And then what happened late in the afternoon, instead of going to Ford's Theater, they're taking a carriage to the train station to go to Burlington. Um, and there is a pale man with dark hair um, on horseback who keeps galloping past their carriage. And then he circles around and he kind of swoops down and he looks in at them, glares in at them in a way that Grant found very um, unnerving. And the following day, when Grant for the first time set eyes on a picture of uh, John Wilkes Booth, he realized that the man who had been stalking Junior, Julia at lunch and then stalking them in the carriage on the way to the train station was John Wilkes Booth. It's an amazing story. Wow. And he was, he, was, he was on the list. There was no yeah. question that Grant was on the list. Now, how did he react to Lincoln's assassination? Oh, you know, there's a very touching image of him when Lincoln's body was lying in state, I think, in the East Room of the White House, mm -hmm. um, of Grant standing there, you know, alone near the casket, um, convulsed with tears, you know, his body uh, shaking. Uh, Grant said that Lincoln was incontestably uh, the greatest man he'd ever met. And they had a very touching relationship that I think really went beyond just that Lincoln came to uh, trust Grant more than any other general. You know, they were kind of both Westerners, mm -hmm. rather kind of simple, you know, um, Midwestern uh, backgrounds. I think that they felt a, a kinship with each other. And Lincoln treated Grant with great um, affection. In fact, uh, some of his comments, he found something um, amusing about uh, Grant. He said to one of his secretaries uh, about uh, after he met Grant in person, he said, he's the quietest little fellow you ever saw. He said a couple <laughs> of times. He's been in my office for a minute or two before I even realized he was there. <laughs> I mean, there's kind of real affection, yeah. you know, in that uh, comment um, about it. And I think that uh, Lincoln had a profound impact on Grant. And I think that, you know, Lincoln's agenda for the war, first preserving the Union um, and then um, uh, freeing the uh, slaves and, and uh, conferring citizenship on them, you know, that agenda uh, really becomes Grant's agenda for the rest mm -hmm. of his life. And then Lincoln... Um, uh, is assassinated, and Grant never expressed it this way, but I think that he really feels that he has taken on his shoulder, you know, the mantle <laughs> of Abraham Lincoln, always honored him, always spoke reverently about him. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with author and historian Ron Chernow when we come back in just a minute. Folks, the most successful business owners I know are people who enjoy what they're doing. Whatever their thing is, they love it. But here's what they don't love, when they have to stop doing what makes them money to handle something that doesn't, especially when it comes to email. And that's one reason AppRiver shines. AppRiver keeps your inbox free from spam and viruses, so you don't have to worry about all that junk cluttering up your day. If you're running your own email servers, protect them with AppRiver. And if you're tired of that headache, just sign up for Hosted Exchange or Office 365 and get your email from the cloud. Here's the best part. Call AppRiver anytime, night or day, and you'll talk to a real, live, U.S.-based company employee. Somebody who's trained to take care of your issue and lets you get back to doing what you love. Visit appriver.com slash kick and try any of their services free for 30 days. That's appriver.com slash kick. And now, back to the podcast. Now, where did Grant originally see himself going after the war? Did he have any particular presidential ambitions? No, but you know, as, as throughout American history, you know, whether it's George Washington or 
Zachary Taylor or by David Eisenhower, you know, Victoria's generals are immediately mm-hmm. seen as um, potential, you know, presidential candidates. In fact, even Lincoln, you know, when he's running um, for re-election in uh, 1864, keeps sending different emissaries to sound out Grant to make sure that Grant um, does not have uh, presidential ambitions. And Lincoln makes an interesting statement. Once a man gets that maggot in his brain, he can't get it out. <laughs> and and when word comes back from these emissaries that Grant feels has one and one you know, goal alone, uh, which is to defeat the Confederacy, uh, Lincoln is enormously uh, reassured because he was very afraid that Grant was going to suddenly emerge as a political rival. Now, when the war um, ends, uh, Grant is still general-in-chief. And so during that kind of four-year interregnum between the end of the war and the beginning of Grant's first term as president, he still is general-in-chief. And there's even a period where he's acting secretary of uh, war. So that Grant really has like a continuous uh, 16-year period of his life from 1861 to 1877 where he is centrally involved in everything going on <laughs> yeah. in the Civil War and Reconstruction. Yeah, and history is littered with uh, military leaders who transitioned into politics and maybe wasn't such an easy transition. How was it for Grant? Well, I, th- I think that it was difficult. You know, during the Civil War, um, Grant Grant's position, I think, was shot through with political calculations. I mean, for instance, he said to Lincoln, and Lincoln had never even thought of it, uh, when it came to the defeat of uh, Lee's army, uh, Grant said to Lincoln that he wanted the Army of the Potomac to do it. The Army of the Tennessee out west had been winning all of these victories. He thought it was important in terms of post-war politics that the mm-hmm. Army of the Potomac huh. also be able to claim victory. And interestingly enough, Lincoln, who was a master politician, uh, said to Grant, oh, gee, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so he was already becoming very astute politically. But I think that when he became uh, president, by his own admission later on, um, he didn't realize in certain ways how unprepared mm-hmm. he was. So he said that he tried to uh, keep very much the same kind of model that he had had for his staff in wartime and try to transfer that into mm-hmm. the White House. And it didn't work. So for instance, Grant had gotten accustomed during the war, being very secretive about his uh, decisions. He was always afraid that his plans would be prematurely uh, disclosed. And so when he picks his first cabinet, for instance, he doesn't consult anyone, you know, mm-hmm. makes some very significant mistakes because he didn't yet realize that part of being president is to um, vet everything carefully, you know, to engage <laughs> in a collaborative yeah. process. So there were a number of elementary lessons that he learned mm-hmm. the hard way. But I argue in the book that Grant, as president, got a lot of small things uh, wrong as president, but got the big ones mm-hmm. right in terms of, you know, certain major policy issues coming out of the war. His presidency was plagued with charges of corruption, incompetence, and graft. Is it right that blame for that is laid on his shoulders? Well, yes and no. I I mean, it's not fair to the extent that uh, these were not scandals in which he personally was uh, implicated. He didn't condone them, and he prosecuted them uh, vigorously for the most part. Um, On the other hand, uh, Grant had an incurably naive streak and tended to be blind to unscrupulous people. You know, he misplaced his trust, particularly he had an aide in the White House, Orwell Babcock. Today we would say he was chief of staff, mm-hmm. and Babcock was very involved in the scandal known as the, uh, the, the, the Whiskey Ring. And I go into great, great detail in the book about these scandals. They are important. I don't want to minimize that. But I feel that um, the big story of uh, his presidency is not the scandals, that the big story is Reconstruction and what he did to protect 
mm-hmm. the four million former slaves who were now okay, the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, the 14th Amendment gives them full citizenship right, and then the 15th Amendment gives them, at least black males, the right to vote. Yeah, I'm curious about his thinking on race. Yeah. Was he a true believer in abolition, or was that a gradual evolution? Explain his thinking. It was a gradual on evolution by Grant's mm-hmm. own admission going into the Civil War. Uh, he was not a hero on this uh, uh, issue. He did had received one uh, slave as a gift before the Civil War in 1858, when he desperately could have used the money selling a slave. Uh, he actually uh, went to the city hall and freed the. Demand, so that there wasn't a, um, an opposition to slavery. But I think when the war starts, Grant and all the Union generals uh, have doubts in terms of whether um, blacks who were recently slaves you know, could be um, capable uh, soldiers. And there's a very important battle, Milliken's Bend. This is right around the time of Vicksburg Falls. Milliken's Bend on the Mississippi, where a black soldier show, soldiers show not only that they can be very good soldiers, but enormously courageous, highly motivated soldiers. And it's saying something because the um, black soldiers that had already been announced by the Confederacy that any um, you know black soldiers in the Union Army who were captured by the Confederates faced one of two possibilities. They either would be uh, executed or they would be sold back into mm-hmm. slavery. And so they had to put it mildly. <laughs> they showed great courage. Yeah. But were yeah, also very highly lose. motivated to defeat yeah. the uh, Confederates. So I think that this is just mm-hmm. kind of honest of Grant actually observing mm-hmm. uh, the behavior of uh, black soldiers. So he kind of gets religion on this issue. In this sort of Grant way, it was a process that occurred very quietly. Yeah, and this lingering resentment in the South that fueled the resurgence of the KKK yeah. and yeah. that sort of the South will rise again mentality for really a century after the Civil War. Absolutely. Could Grant have possibly done anything more to avoid that, or was it inevitable? You know, I think in retrospect, it, it looks inevitable. You know, he always said, I was more than ready to meet the South halfway. And I think that this would have happened uh, had Lincoln lived, too. Um, the war had emancipated the slaves. The 14th and 15th Amendment had given them, you know, full citizenship rights, including uh, voting. Um, many of the southern states uh, had very large black populations. In fact, in South Carolina and Mississippi, blacks constituted uh, the majority of the population. And the white South, which had been accustomed to white supremacy, was not going to allow blacks to have that role. And you know, during Reconstruction, we had 600 blacks in Southern legislatures. We had 14 black congressmen and, and two black senators. Um, but there were, you know, the, the, the Klan spread like wildfire to every mm-hmm. Southern state. Uh, they murdered thousands of blacks. And the point of that was really to terrorize the black community into not exercising the right um, to vote. And there was no Southern jury that would convict a member of the Klan. So these were crimes that went um, unprosecuted until Grant launched this crusade against the Klan. Well, these days we're living in such divisive times, maybe not as divisive as back then, but are there lessons to be drawn from Grant and how we can unite people from opposite sides of the political spectrum, people who far too often see each other as the enemy and may believe that their differences are completely irreconcilable? Well, I think, you know, I've been following very closely this whole controversy about the Confederate uh, monuments. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, um, you know, when you strip away a lot of the political rhetoric, um, at at the base of it is that we're at war with ourselves um, because um, there are two different narratives out there. They're kind of two different stories of what happened Mm -hmm. uh, during the, uh, the Civil War. So, you know, what I'm hoping with the monuments 
is that uh, we can use this as a teachable moment. You know, move those, remove those uh, Confederate monuments, put them in historical societies, mm-hmm. begin to teach people about uh, the Civil War and uh, Reconstruction. Because I, you know, I did an informal poll my friends in New York who grew up in the South, just asking how um, you know Civil War and Reconstruction were taught, and there were kind of a lot of differences, yeah. but two consistent things. One, they were all taught that the Civil War was about um, states' rights, but <laughs> every historian knows it was about slavery, and that was there was no controversy <laughs> at the time uh, about that. And then they were uh, all taught about uh, that uh, Reconstruction was a complete uh, fiasco of mm-hmm. corrupt carpetbag politicians and illiterate black legislators, and um, there's been a major, major uh, rethinking of, re- of Reconstruction the last generation or two. So most historians now would see it as um, a, a, a glorious, if ultimately doomed, attempt to create a, a biracial society mm-hmm. in the United States. And so I really think that we have to um, kind of come to uh, agreement in terms of what happened, because as long as yeah. we're walking around, you know, two different stories in our head, then we can't really find common ground mm-hmm. you know, uh, on this. And the South, not everyone in the South, and I have found that a lot of young Southerners um, are not as attached to a lot of these Confederate symbols you know, as yeah. their grandparents or great-grandparents must have been. So I still am always, always trying to be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the states' rights argument always bugged me. And I got into it with people after the Confederate flag controversy, uh, I guess yeah. about a year or two ago. Yeah. People would make this argument. It's about states' rights, about the southern economy. And I'm like, well, yeah, states' rights to have slaves. <laughs> you know, an economy exactly, uh, entirely yeah, dependent on slave labor. Kind of, uh, it was a I mean, is there any legitimate argument to be made that the war wasn't entirely about slavery? Well, you know, um, right after the Confederacy was uh, formed in um, early 1861, Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederate States of America, uh, gave a speech in which he said that the cornerstone of the Confederacy was the idea that the black man was inferior, that slavery was the black's mm-hmm. natural state. And he said, this is the first government founded on that great uh, principle. So if you look at all the secession conventions of the 11 states that seceded, it was all about slavery. They you know, wrote a constitution that was based on the American constitution, uh, except for the provisions um, that guaranteed the future of slavery. So there's really not any argument mm-hmm. among uh, historians, but this uh, folklore uh, in in the South is very very persistent, and then I always say to people, you know, who present me with the um, states' rights argument, uh, historians now believe that seven hundred fifty thousand Americans died in the Civil War, and I just say to them, you really think that seven hundred fifty thousand people sacrificed their lives for the sake of states' rights? I know a lot of people <laughs> now who feel very yeah. strongly uh, about that, but I'm not aware. Uh, that they're willing to lay down their lives <laughs> for that principle. Yeah. And, of course, the states' rights, as mm-hmm. you say. Uh, why was there such an emphasis on states' rights? Uh, because they felt that federal intervention was interfering with the mm-hmm. peculiar institution of slavery. Right. And I guess the idea that it was all about states' rights kind of came around alongside the resurgence of uh, you know, KKK in, what, the 1920s or the no, turn of the it, century or earlier than, earlier that, than that? Know, because right after the Civil War, you know, a group of writers, included many Confederate generals, it was called the Lost Cause School, mm-hmm. uh, essentially began to uh, romanticize and mythologize the, the war. And part of that was that um, I guess it was no longer fashionable to defend slavery, so they said, you know, that oh, the war was about uh, uh, states' rights. You know, and that kind of romanticized view of the the South 
It's very influential not only in the South but in, in the North. I find it uh, remarkable, given the fact that the North won the, the Civil War, uh, that uh, to this day the most famous Hollywood movie about the Civil War is yeah. Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. which you know has happy slaves <laughs> yeah. you know, singing in the, in the fields. And this was very much a view that was yeah. propagated yeah. Uh, in the years after the Civil War by the so-called Lost Cause writers. Yeah, and, and along similar lines, a couple of months ago, I had Ken Burns on, and I asked him about the Confederate statues issue, and he said, look at when the statues were erected. If they were erected during the Reconstruction or perhaps during the 1950s, then that shows that the, the the motives behind the statue, the purpose of the statue, was racist, as opposed to honoring yeah, the dead. Yeah, because the statue like started that. going up around 1875. So, in other words, towards the end of Grant's uh, second term as president, at a time when not only was the you know white South uh, violently opposed to uh, Reconstruction, but even support within his own you know Republican Party in the mm-hmm. North had begun to wane. And so, as those statues went up, it was a statement of defiance. Uh, about Reconstruction uh, and really a reassertion of, mm-hmm. of white supremacy. So Ken is really right. These were not neutral statues by some history buff <laughs> saying, wouldn't it be nice you know, to, to um, commemorate Robert E. Lee, that there yeah. was a big political agenda. And if you read about this wonderful book by David Blight called Race and Reunion, you know, it describes the uh, ceremonies in a lot of the southern states as these statues went up, you know, gigantic crowds and kind of fiery lost cause uh, speeches. Um, you know, now this, the statue might just be standing on a street corner in front of a, a courthouse. And so people don't understand the particular historical context in which they were created and why they were created. And there was sort of a big political agenda. So mm-hmm. Ken Burns is absolutely right. Uh, going back to Grant, after his presidency, he found himself in desperate financial straits. How did that happen? Well, you know, it turned out that Grant had formed a partnership with a young man named Ferdinand Ward, lionized as the young Napoleon of finance. Uh, and it turned out that and Grant invested his life savings with, uh, with Ferdinand Ward. Uh, Ward turned out to be the Bernie Madoff of his day. <laughs> the whole thing was a big Ponzi scheme. And so he listens as Grant, who imagined that he was a multimillionaire, woke up one day to find out that he was worth exactly uh, $80 and the whole thing was just a monstrous hoax. And at that point, I mean, the one thing that we owe to that, the one good side of that whole disaster was that Grant had sworn he would never write his memoirs, but Mm -hmm. around that time he's diagnosed with cancer of the throat and tongue. He's afraid that, you know, when he dies of cancer, his wife is going to be left destitute. So with Mark Twain as his publisher, he writes the famous um, memoirs, which may have been the greatest bestseller of the 19th century, with yeah. the possible exception of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> yeah, and it's sad and dramatic, his ending, because he's almost like Walter White on Breaking Bad, you know, racing to write his memoirs so he can take care of his family before he croaks. Absolutely, and, you know, he, with that kind of granite determination of Grant's, he wills himself to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And, and he's very fi- painful, he, Very too. painful. It's a yeah. gruesome way to uh, to die. Um, and he puts down his pen, having completed the memoirs, just days before he died. So it was like he really wow. was keeping himself alive Maybe. to finish the, the memoirs. And his job done, he felt that he could <laughs> let go. Uh, before that, was the idea of a presidential memoir frowned upon as maybe being beneath the office or in bad taste? Well, it just you know, it was uh, it was it was a military memoir because um, oh, okay. yeah, right. because you know, it, it covers the it covers his childhood, the Mexican War. 
uh, and then the uh, the Civil War. You know, there, there's no mention of his two-term uh, presidency. So it doesn't pioneer okay. in that respect. But one way in which he did pioneer after he left the presidency, he took this more than two-year round-the-world trip mm-hmm. where he sets a new precedent for the post-presidency by engaging in freelance diplomacy. He arbitrates a dispute between Japan and mm-hmm. uh, China. So Grant continues to surprise throughout his life. <laughs> one of the things I loved writing about him, you know, he was – capable of growing. He was capable of changing and surprising us. Yeah. And Mark Twain played a key role in encouraging him to write his memoir. And I think even in publishing it, I wonder, is there any evidence that maybe Mark Twain served as sort of his editor or maybe ghost wrote for for Grant No, but you know, so many people, as I was writing the book, so many people asked me if Twain was the ghostwriter that I went down to the Library of Congress and I said to the archivist, I want to see the original manuscript, and mm. I, I leaped through every page of the manuscript, almost all of it until the very end is in Grant's uh, handwriting. Really? And, and Twain himself wow. said uh, that uh, his contribution was kind of relatively trivial matters of grammar and uh, punctuation. He made this lovely statement. He thought the memoir was a masterpiece, and he said their style is flawless. No man can improve upon it. I don't mm-hmm. think that... Uh, Grant could any more have imitated Mark Twain's style than Mark Twain could have imitated Ulysses S. Grant's style. It's interesting because they have similar fates in some ways because much like Grant, Mark Twain went into a great deal of debt through bad investments and then had to sing for his supper and dig himself out of that. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, because they sold uh, the, the Grant memoirs sold in these kind of two-volume box sets. They sold 300,000. At the time of the population of the country, it was only about 40 million. Um, but, um, you know, Twain had set up this publishing company with his nephew, Charles Webster. Uh, they have a great commercial success with uh, Grant's memoirs. And, um, you know, a lot of scholars feel that Twain got very sidetracked from his writing career, you know, by this business success. And then he had, you know, business uh, failure. Yeah. So there are some interesting parallels between the two lives. Now, I've never read it, but I'm sure you have. Uh, How does it hold up? Is it a typical self-serving, trying to frame history type of memoir? Or does it have some value as a historical No, I, I think it has tremendous value because, you know, Grant had not wanted to write his memoirs initially. He thought that there was something very kind of egotistical about mm-hmm. that. And I think that what's so uh, charming and engaging about the memoirs is they're very self-effacing. Grant admits fear. This is kind of my favorite uh, passages towards the beginning. Uh, he's going into what he thinks will be his first combat experience uh, in Missouri, and um, he and his men are approaching this hill, and Grant said his heart rose up into his throat. He was so terrified. And then they get to the top of the hill, and they look down, and the Confederates have fled um, in expectation of Grant coming. And he mm-hmm. said to himself, he said, I suddenly realized that they were as afraid of me <laughs> as I was of them. And he said that that was an insight that he never forgot for the rest yeah. of the war. Not only think about your own fears and weaknesses, mm-hmm. But he was able to sort of project himself into his enemy's fears and weaknesses, and it was a tremendous edge for him. Now, your book, Alexander Hamilton, was, of course, later turned into the hit Broadway musical Hamilton. Uh, Do you think that you can picture U.S. Grant kicking up his heels and breaking into song? (laughs) No, I I, I think it's safe to say that that Grant's life does not move to a hip-hop beat, but I think that it certainly is as dramatic— a story, and I have hopes that it will be a fine feature film. If I had to predict, you. really, who when would I come you back cast? next time? Uh, I don't know whom I would have. That's a <laughs> that's a more difficult uh, yeah. question. But I know that um, uh, it will not be a Broadway yeah. musical. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I think a while back, years, a few years back, I had I was in some meetings with Richard Dreyfus, 
And I feel yeah. like at one point or another, there was an A&E movie that he was attached to probably 10 yeah, years I, Richard, ago. Or something I, like I, I've met him a couple of times. He's an, and he enormous, loves history. He's Big an enormous guy. student of yeah. history. So at a certain age, he's now would be a little too old yeah. uh, to play Grant. But at a certain time, he actually would have been, yeah. I think, quite interesting because you know Richard is rather short. Grant was somewhat... Uh, short, uh, yeah. So yeah. Richard, you know, missed his chance. There, maybe he had it. I, I, I didn't see that. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't, it was never made. I don't oh, think. Okay. But yeah. well, that's a movie I'll pay to see. Uh, Once again, Ron Chernow's epic biography Grant is available in bookstores on Amazon and Audible right now. Ron, thanks for joining me. Oh, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Wonderful interview. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Ron Chernow for coming on the podcast. Order his epic biography, Grant, on Amazon, or download the audio version at audible.com. Today's episode was sponsored by Nadex. Imagine if you could choose your maximum risk and reward up front. That way you could try day trading the markets without worrying about the risk. Well, luckily you can with binary options on Nadex. Trade global stock indexes, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, all from one account and always with limited risk. See why over 100,000 members choose Nadex. Find out more at nadex.com. Trading on Nadex involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. And please take a moment to take our listener survey at podsurvey.com kick so we can get to know who's listening and it's also helpful with our advertisers. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.